Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. Tonight, before I begin our story, I would like to take a moment to express my sadness for the passing of the greatest queen in the history of the world. Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain has, for my entire life, been the leader whom I most admired and loved for her intelligence, wit, and grace under pressure. Good night, sweet Lilibet, and rest well. Although I never had the joy of meeting you, I will miss the light of your presence in this world very much. Okay. Earlier this week, before I learned of that sad news, I wrote a story for our 125th episode, the 15th of Season 2, A Season of Short Works. Now that I think about it, I realize that my story is about a woman who, in almost every way, is the opposite of the Queen. For this fictional woman was content to live in the shadows of others and on the sidelines of life for far too long. However, when she finally gets out there and tries to experience life for herself on her own terms, she quickly becomes overwhelmed. And then, who should step in to attempt to take control of her life but a vampire? Actually, two of them, with very different motivations and origins. The choice to write a vampire narrative this week was inspired by the unearthing of a 17th century vampire skeleton in Poland. The skeleton had a scythe across her neck and a padlock around her toe. And despite her luxurious and expensive clothing that indicated in life she must have been wealthy, archaeologists speculate that she must have been some sort of outcast. A woman who was not afraid to get out there and be herself, for which she was likely ostracized and punished by death. I've included a link to an article with photos of the dig site, where she was found in the show notes. It's truly bizarre. In contrast, the vampire against whom she is battling for the soul of this woman, who lives a rather unexamined life, was inspired by the legend of Abartok, the Irish dwarf wizard king, also a vampire. I've included a link to this story in the show notes, too. Which of these vampires, if either of them, will win in their quest to change the life of this week's protagonist? Well, you'll have to keep listening to find out as I present this week's tale, which is called Out There, a short story by Vivian Catfield. Lorna Cahan knew that she needed to get out there. Ten hours ago, she had eaten the last packet of trail mix that she'd taken from the ship's galley, and her stomach snarled with hunger. Still, what Lorna had seen the last time she ventured outside of her stateroom haunted her. If the water hadn't mysteriously shut off in her tiny bathroom, Lorna might have simply remained there until the ship ran aground. They weren't too far from the coast now. Lorna could see the white outline of Dover from her balcony if she leaned out far enough. She appreciated the reassurance of the chalky cliffs, the steadily growing lifeline of sea blanched safety, that grew closer, hour by hour, on the horizon. As she tried to muster up the courage to open the door, Lorna wondered whether she should take her journal. It was a silly thought, really, 
wanting to keep the only concrete record of what had happened close to her, touching her body, as if somehow that made it more real. Putting her hand to the door, a sudden urge overtook Lorna to read it again, to prove herself by hard evidence, even if it were written in her own hand, that she had not, in fact, lost her mind. Grateful for an excuse to remain inside the cabin for even a few more minutes, Lorna checked the lock again, then put her back against it and slid down the wall to the floor. Flipping the rose-tinted pages with trembling hands, Lorna reviewed the progress of her emotions. The initial excitement two weeks ago, when her friend surprised her on her birthday with the gift of a European cruise, just after she dropped her younger son off at college. Then the apprehension she felt the next day, when she looked up the details on the cruise line's website, to find that what her friends had actually booked was a singles-only excursion. You need to get out there, they'd sung in a chorus of constant refrain. Meet some new people. By people, they'd meant men, of course. Lorna had plenty of female friends, some that she'd kept ever since high school and college. Having never moved away from her hometown of Cincinnati or even the east side in which she'd grown up, Lorna's life hadn't changed much, even after Chris and she divorced. Her life continued to circle in the same doldrums as before. Early morning runs with her mom's group before taking the boys to school. Days filled with tennis and volunteer work for dozens of committees. Painting and pottery classes two afternoons a week. Spin classes on the others and then picking up the boys every evening from sports practices after school. Rinse, wash, and repeat. Even her clothes didn't change much. Swaddled in the same Lululemon athleisure outfits that merely added or subtracted layers depending on the season, it was only when Lorna began trying to decide what to wear on this cruise that she noticed she didn't own a single pair of real pants. Lorna's inevitable empty nester existential breakdown arrived while she was in Nordstrom, of all places, selecting the sundresses and linen pants that she'd assumed were the uniform for every 40-something woman who embarked on such tame voyages. As she shopped, she thought about her ex-husband, what he would say if he knew she were going on a cruise by herself. They'd never traveled much, which meant that Lorna had barely traveled at all especially before their divorce. They'd never even had a honeymoon, because Chris said he simply couldn't leave the hospital long enough to accommodate one. Lorna and Chris had originally been biology lab partners in undergrad. He'd proposed the night of graduation, and they'd married at Christmas, a semester after his acceptance to medical school. To save them the struggle of having to buy a starter house on their own, Chris's grandmother had moved in with his parents, leaving her massive brick Victorian in Hyde Park to them. Having no debt to hold them back and a map of inevitable wealth laid out before them, the new couple wasted no time in starting a family. By 26, Lorna was the mom to two sons. At first, she'd decided to postpone her own graduate school endeavors in order to spare the boys from what all of her Catholic in-laws considered a form of child abuse, sending them to daycare. However, when Chris's first hospital contract after graduation brought in over 300000 a year, they decided it would be best if Lorna just stayed at home for good. Actually, Lorna reconsidered now, 
sitting on the floor with her journal in her lap and her back pressed against the door of her stateroom. That wasn't completely accurate. Chris and Chris's family had decided it would be best if Lorna stayed at home. Having no particularly defined passions directing her towards graduate school, Lorna had merely agreed with them. Like all poor decisions, it had seemed like the right one at the time. Just like this trip, Lorna thought, as the lights flickered on and off around the cabin. From the very first night they left Stockholm, something had seemed off. Dining alone at the bar for the opening dinner, Lorna was sipping champagne and texting pictures to her friends of her view toward the Baltic Sea when a man sat down beside her. She didn't notice him at first, partly because he was so short. Lorna was only 5'6", but the man barely came up to her shoulder. When Lorna turned to face him, she found herself in the unusual position of staring straight down at the top of his bloodlessly pale, white, bald head. The hair encircling his crown was bright red and curly, like a clown's, but his face was like something out of a nightmare. Heavily jowled and scarred, with a nose crooked and plainly broken, possibly more than once. When he spoke, it was with an Irish brogue so thick, Lorna could barely discern his words. Eventually, after asking him to please repeat himself several times over the noise of the crowd, Lorna managed to decipher that his name was Hamish Aberhart, and that he was involved somehow in the business of shipping. Although he continued to babble on regarding the specifics of his company, most of it was lost on Lorna, other than the fact that he seemed to feel the need of stressing to her the extensiveness of his investments in various stocks and how much he profited from them annually. She'd always detested men who spoke constantly about money and had been in the process of rising to leave when Hamish grabbed her arm. His grip was like nothing Lorna had ever felt before, ice cold and unyielding, like an iron cuff at the end of a shackle. Arrested there in mid-escape, Lorna could feel the vice-like pressure tightening around the bones of her lower right arm, grinding them together uncomfortably. She gasped and, in so doing, tipped a small amount of champagne onto her dress from the glass. As she reached back toward the bar for a napkin, Lorna felt the pressure of another hand, which caused Hamish to relinquish his hold. His back turned to Lorna now. Hamish hissed a sharp outburst of air like an angry cat and fled. What's his problem? Lorna asked the woman who'd rescued her as she rubbed her right arm. Four red feverish welts in the shape of Hamish's stubby fingers had already begun to rise like a blister from a chemical burn. Lorna studied them curiously. There are too many to mention, the woman replied, calmly taking a sip of her vodka. Straight, no mixer, and not chilled, Lorna noticed. Her vocal cadence suggested Eastern European, which to Lorna was not at all surprising, considering that their next port of call was Gdansk. But her dress was most unusual. An old-fashioned, high-collared number, all in black, with lace trim and cuffs. It made Lorna wonder if the woman thought the theme for the opening night of the cruise had been a costume ball. Lorna lifted her gaze then to the woman's face. She was breathtakingly beautiful, 
with ivory skin and thick black hair gathered up into a French twist. Do you know him? Lorna asked. The woman's eyes, mostly a dark gray, flashed bright silver like moonlight on water as she continued to speak. I have known of him for a long time, she replied, the barest hint of a tight-lipped smile turning up at the corners of her mouth. One might say that Hamish's reputation precedes him, but have I ever had the, she winced at the word, pleasure of his personal acquaintance? No, no. Grateful to have someone to talk to, Lorna invited the woman to sit down next to her, in the seat recently vacated by Hamish. At first, the woman seemed hesitant to say much about herself, preferring instead to steer the conversation toward topics more of personal interest to Lorna, her sons and their lives, her divorce, the possibility that she had been pondering of finally returning to graduate school to become a physician herself, and why that idea was realistic even though she was older, because she'd written most of Chris's essays while he was in medical school. Not used to talking so much about herself uninterrupted, Lorna drank more quickly than she was accustomed to and, before she knew it, reached the empty bottom of her third glass of champagne. It was only after she'd ordered a fourth that the other woman began to speak about her own life. The woman said she was from Poland and that her name was Renata Genowick. She told Lorna that she'd married young, at 17, to a much older, wealthy man whom she did not love, but because her father had chosen him to secure their family's future. This choice turned out to be disastrous, as Renata's husband was a jealous man, who abused her with increasing frequency, especially once it became apparent after several years of marriage that Renata was not particularly fertile and thus unlikely to produce an heir. He treated me like a shock of wheat before the scythe, always cutting me down, believing that would make me fall and bow to him. He kept me shackled away from my family, my friends, from anything that might remind me of who I was or what I loved. Renata shook her head sadly. He tried to kill my spirit, but in the end, he could not take my life. I rose in spite of him, and I made him pay dearly for the life he had taken from me. Lorna sat motionless, rapt as Renata explained her story in very visual hyperboles, growing more and more animated as she spoke. Just as Lorna had been about to ask precisely how Renata had made her terrible husband pay, an announcement sounded over the loudspeakers. The orchestra stopped playing, and several in the crowd booed. Dear guests, an automated voice spoke in a clipped official tone, we regret to inform you that an outbreak has been detected. Following the company's contagious disease containment protocols to ensure your health and safety, we ask that you vacate the ballroom immediately and return to your own rooms to await further instructions while we sterilize the premises and evaluate the situation. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause and hope to resume regular activities in a few hours. In the confusion that followed, as the other passengers complained and jeered, pushing angrily out of the ballroom, 
Renata slipped away without ever answering Lorna's last question. Lorna would not see her again for three days. Once back in her room, Lorna tried to call home, but there was no cellular signal. The further instructions promised by the robotic voice never came. Exhausted and drunk on champagne, Lorna fell into a deep sleep the moment her head hit the pillow. She didn't give the announcement a second thought. Ever since COVID, such precautions had become almost commonplace. Lorna remained locked in her cabin until late the next morning, when she noticed that a flyer had been slipped under her door, stating that room service would be temporarily suspended until further notice. Starving and with a pounding headache from her excess of champagne the night before, Lorna decided to venture out and see what was going on. She came across the first dead body at the end of the hallway by the elevators. It was a man, around her own age, but wearing a cruise line uniform with the name Martin and the words in-room dining on his name tag. Twin trails of blood had trickled down his neck and dried to crust in little puddles at the collar of his shirt. The silver-colored serving cart next to him had the vaguely stale smell of cold french fries. At first, Lorna was so shocked that she didn't know what to do. Then, realizing she still couldn't use her cell, she glanced around for any kind of emergency call-in device but saw nothing. Figuring that the only way to report the man's death was to speak in person with someone, Lorna attempted to summon the elevator, but it didn't budge. Remembering from the passenger training at the beginning of the cruise that security was near the bottom of the ship's hold, Lorna darted down the stairwell. At the bottom of the staircase, she encountered a second body. This time, it was a woman, dressed in a sparkly black low-cut cocktail dress. She must have been a guest. Yet, on her throat were the same two puncture wounds as on the server's neck. Lorna shuddered, but kept walking down the dark, narrow crew hallway in the direction of the security office, stopping to peer into the tiny porthole, porthole windows of various other offices along the way, Lorna started to panic, but forced herself to breathe slowly as she quickened her pace. Every room was empty. She was the only soul there. Passing one of the open service entrances for the galley along the way, she paused. There was a basket of small individual packets of trail mix and other snacks sitting on a table in what appeared to be the staff break room. Feeling somewhat guilty, but ravenously hungry after having skipped dinner and skeptical of finding other food, Lorna took a half dozen of them and put them in her crossbody bag. Walking out through the main kitchen in hopes of finding someone, Lorna spotted a long row of chef stations, but again, no people. Above each countertop, a magnetic strip of long steel knives gleamed softly in the low light. Impulsively, Lorna reached for the largest knife right in the center. The blade was almost as long as her forearm. Holding it made her feel somewhat better. Making her way at last to the security office, Lorna knocked on the door. No answer. The lights were off inside. Lorna's breath caught as she backed toward the staircase leading to the upper decks, not wanting to accept what was happening. How could a whole ship filled with people 
guests, crew, everyone. Just vanish. No, Lorna corrected herself, remembering her original mission through a haze of denial. They hadn't all vanished. The server, the other guest, they were both dead. Someone or something had killed them. What if she were the only one left, Lorna thought. What if, somehow, whatever it was had passed her by while she was sleeping? As Lorna pondered these things, the door to the security office began to creak open slowly. Lorna's palm began to sweat as she gripped the handle of the knife more tightly and edged toward the door of the staircase behind her. Not wanting to take her eyes off the security door, Lorna reached back for the handle and eased it open, just as a figure emerged from the security office. Short and balding, his broken face smeared with blood, Lorna recognized him immediately, despite the long fangs protruding over his chin. Hamish! But as Hamish stumbled around the dimly lit hallway, Lorna could tell there was something else wrong with him. Hamish's eyes were clouded. He tapped around at the walls, sightless as a mole. Then he turned his head curiously to the side, sniffing the air. Suddenly his head snapped toward her. The milky whites of his eyes glowed red, and he leapt toward her. Slamming the door behind her just in time, Lorna screamed as she sprinted up the stairs, knife still in hand. Below her, she heard Hamish crash into the door, then an otherworldly roar. Not taking the chance of looking back, Lorna scaled the steps two at a time all the way to the main deck. However, when she got there, the door wouldn't budge. There was something blocking it. Putting her back against the door and pressing as hard as she could with her legs, Lorna was able to push it open just far enough to squeeze through. The light of the noonday sun glared so brightly after the dimly lit lower decks that it made Lorna see spots. Once her vision cleared, however, Lorna could tell what had been blocking the door. Another body. Stepping cautiously out onto the main deck, Lorna saw them, one after another, laying just as they had fallen in dried pools of blood. It was like walking out onto a battlefield the morning after. Lorna began to shake uncontrollably. Think, she demanded of herself. Think. Someone has to still be alive on board. Who is piloting this ship? As she racked her brain, trying to remember from the training at the start of the cruise again that she'd barely paid attention to where the pilot seat might be, Hamish rushed out of the stairwell door. Startled, Lorna screamed again and dropped her knife as she tripped over one of the bodies lying on the deck behind her. Yet, as Hamish came to the edge of the shade cast by the overlook, he stopped abruptly. Hunched over and panting for breath, he glared at Lorna with his hungry red eyes as he paced back and forth beneath the shadow of the awning. Finally, letting out an ear-splitting screech in frustration, Hamish disappeared back down the staircase from whence he came. He can't come out into the sun, Lorna said to herself, realizing what that must mean, even though every part of her rational mind fought against it. The idea of what he was. 
she looked around her at the bodies strewn upon the decks. Would they, then, she wondered aloud, trying to remember every story about their kind she'd ever read. Lorna pushed the thought away. It was too unthinkable. Lorna spent the rest of the afternoon forcing herself to explore the remainder of the ship. She found no one else alive. The closest she came was a note left in the pilot's office next to his body. The note stated that the pilot, fearing for his life and knowing he was the only one on board who had the skills to do so, due to staffing shortages, had set the ship on autopilot, a course that would end when they ran aground at Dover. At the end of the note, the pilot apologized to any survivors who might find him or the note later on that there wasn't any more he could do to summon help because all of the ship's communications with the outside world had already been knocked out at the time of his writing. Saying a quiet thank you, even though she knew the pilot wouldn't hear her, Lorna returned to her room and locked the door. That had been three days ago. And so now, there she was, out of food and water. Lorna knew that she had to get back out there to find something without going back into the darkened depths of the kitchen or galley rooms. Surely, she thought that someone would have left snacks out by the pool or by the endless rows of deck chairs that circled the railings. Of course, she knew she'd have to step over the bodies to get to them and that they would likely be stinking by now. But Lorna tried not to think of that. Lorna had always been good at making herself think about other things rather than what was really out there in her life. Nevertheless, since the realization hit her that this might really be the end, Lorna had spent the last three days alternating between sleeping, crying, and writing. Writing at first to her sons, documenting the parts of her life that she thought worth remembering, but ultimately writing only to herself. All of the things that she was proud of doing and all of the things that she wished she'd done. The second list was much longer than the first. She dared not write what she would do if she survived. It seemed too hopeful. Still, Lorna kept the book with her. If someone found her, like she'd found the pilot, she wanted them to have it. At last, after she'd finished rereading all of the journal and had no more excuse to linger, Lorna opened the door. It was late afternoon, and the wind had the chill of rain to it. Leaving her cabin, Lorna took the knife from the galley with her. Keeping to the outside corridors that were partially in the sun, Lorna skirted the perimeter of her deck toward the pool. And that was where she found her, waiting in the shade of the cabana. Renata! Lorna exclaimed, running toward her almost forgotten friend of three days prior. I thought everyone else was dead. Where have you been? Renata didn't move. She sat almost in the same position as Lorna had last seen her, calmly sipping a small glass of room-temperature vodka. Here, Renata replied lethargically. And there, 
She pointed to the cabinets beneath the rounded circumference of the cabana. Trying to stay out of the way until the time was right. Although Renata rotated in her seat to avoid letting Lorna look at her, she was not quick enough. Lorna saw that Renata's eyes were milky white, covered in the same cataract glaze as Hamish's had been. Renata's face was the same alabaster hue as before, only now it was gaunt and lined with dark circles under her eyes. Knowing without asking what that meant, Lorna asked her, Why didn't you tell me? Renata shrugged. What good would it have done? To frighten you with the inevitable. We can't have been the only ones you've seen, surely. At your age, and from what you've told me, you must have encountered many of us. You simply did not allow yourself to realize it at the time. Your eyes weren't open to what was out there. Her clouded gray eyes met Lorna's blue ones and brightened to a dull pewter color. However, I believe they are open now. So what happens next? Lorna asked. Renata stared out over the horizon. Hmm, she said nonchalantly. We wait. The great metal hummingbirds, what are they called? She made a circular motion in the air with one hand. Helicopters. I have seen two or three of them circling. They must know something is wrong on the mainland, but haven't decided what to do about it yet. She shrugged. They will. It just takes some time. Renata smiled, this time bearing the tips of her fangs, to figure out who they want to blame. For a disaster like us, this thing that we are, that is out there. Renata drained the last of her vodka and set her tiny crystal glass down with a click on the counter. But how long will it take? Lorna asked. Until the rescuers come, I mean. I can't go below to get any more food, and they've cut off the water. And even after they do, come back for me, I mean. What will I go back to? You will be going back to your life, Renata replied, looking away from her. Yes, but as I explained before, Lorna said, I don't really have a life. I came here because my friends sent me to look for one, for the kind I'd want to live. And I think I've found it. I think I want to be as you are, to live unafraid of anything or anyone, to go anywhere that I... Renata interrupted her, her eyes glowing from dim pewter to bright silver once more. You think that it is only because I am what I am? That I am able to do those things? To be unafraid to live? She exhaled loudly in exasperation. This, this is not a life. You have a life. Your problem is you choose not to live it. What good would immortality be to someone who already wastes their mortal life of their own free will? Go away, Renata wrinkled her nose. I am weary 
of you. There is food and drink under the counter. Take it and scurry back to your hole. Wait for someone to rescue you if you're unable or unwilling to do it for yourself. What about Hamish, though? Lorna pleaded. Won't he be back tonight looking for me now that everyone else is gone and he has no one to feed off of? Again, Renata refused to look at her. Lorna lowered her voice to a whisper. So why did you save me then, if only to refuse me now? Was it to leave me for him later on? Renata blinked slowly and stared out again over the horizon at the white cliffs. Because I thought I saw something in you, something I remembered of myself that was worth saving. Apparently I was wrong. I have been wrong many times, so many that it is no sorrow to me now. Just leave. I will take care of Hamish. Go and wait to be rescued. Lorna did as she was told. She gathered a purse full of pretzels, chips, and bottled water from beneath the cabana and returned to her room. The next day, she was rescued. When she made the expected rounds of talk shows as the only known survivor in the days that followed her quarantine, Lorna claimed that the tragedy had inspired her to go to medical school. Then, when she returned to Cincinnati, she took the entrance exam for it and failed. She planned on retaking the test, but she never scheduled it. Eventually, Lorna fell back into her usual routines and threw the journal of her voyage away. Through the years of therapy that followed, Lorna convinced herself that it had all been a hallucination, a product of her traumatized brain trying to cope with the tragedy of her surroundings. It was easier to believe that someone like Renata could not exist because to admit otherwise would mean that there were too many other possibilities out there. This is the end of the short story Out There by Vivian Catfield. Tune in next week for another news story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. <laughs>